Well, hey, too good. Thank you so much, Ben. Please feel free to grab a seat and get nice and comfy. Uh, we're super excited to have you here tonight. Uh, and I know Emma and, and Sefo have already welcomed you, but a big thank you for, for coming out to spend your Sunday night out here with us at Beyond. Thank you so much, Emma. Cheers. And uh, we're really excited to have you here too, because we've actually just launched into a brand new series. If you were here last week, uh, we've launched into a series, and it's got such a ripper cool logo for it as well that I'd love to show you, uh, called Naked and Afraid. Um, and so you know, you don't need to uh, be afraid of anyone getting naked across the next uh, couple of weeks, a couple of Sundays as we look at this series, because uh, this series is really crafted uh, for anyone uh, who's ever felt like they've had to cover their imperfections in their life to present the version of themselves that they feel like other people expect of them. Uh, because holding on to every imperfection in our, uh, in our life and every imperfection that we see in ourselves can be really tricky sometimes because it can be really difficult. It can be draining. Uh, and it can be difficult to actually be vulnerable with people in our lives about some of the imperfections that we feel like we have because we don't want to show people what's actually happening in the internal of our own world. Um, when it comes to vulnerability, we ask ourselves this question of what if uh, someone actually breaks our trust and when we share with them? Uh, what if we don't get the reaction we want when we're honest with people about what we're actually thinking, what we're actually feeling, what we're actually experiencing? What if we have a negative experience of vulnerability? Uh, what if people don't love me for what I'm really feeling? It could leave us feeling naked and afraid. That's where we got this series title from. And that's why across the next couple of Sundays together, or the next two Sundays now, we'll be exploring how to open up and actually be vulnerable with the people that we trust in our lives in a way that, uh, that we won't fall apart by doing it. So if you were here last week, one of our communicators, Chris, kicked off the series. We looked at um, part one, and here's a quick little recap for you. In part one, we looked at the differences between the two, the differences between the two words transparency and vulnerability. And we said that transparency, transparency is letting someone see into my life. That transparency is letting someone see into my life. But then we said that vulnerability is different. Vulnerability is letting someone see into my life in such a way that it puts me at risk. That it puts me at risk. That's why we gave these two application questions for you to think about heading into your week. And the two questions were these. What do I miss out on by resisting vulnerability? And what do I gain by remaining guarded? Because ultimately, when it comes to the life and, and, and everything that we experience in our own uh, a journey, we have this craving for others to see us as someone. We all want to be known as someone, but we all want to be loved in some way. But last week we said you can only experience real love. You can only experience real love when people love the real you. And that's what part one looked like. Jumping away from that now, uh, my name's Riley. I'm actually just one of the guys that rock up here of a Sunday. Um, but when it comes to vulnerability and even being honest with you tonight, these are two things I'm continuing uh, to try and grow in every day of my life. But uh, I'm not great at honesty, straight off the bat. Uh, and I can tell you a story about, about why that is so. Uh, probably two years ago now, I was part of a football team. And in this football team, we had a whole bunch of fellas that are actually tradies. And we had this big football breakup. When I'm talking football as well, I'm talking about proper football like soccer. Um, and we had this big kind of football breakup with a barbecue going on. Snags were being passed around. Snakes, were, uh, snakes weren't being passed around. Steaks were being passed around. But snakes being passed around would have been a hoot of a time. Um, but steaks and stags were out and it was a great time and, and the boys are kind of talking about how they're trying to keep up with their projects and all the houses that they have to get built by the end of Christmas and what people want to get done by Christmas, they want to get their decks done and just how much work they had on their plate and one of my mates Luke was talking just about all the hard yakka that he'd have to get finished and I kind of popped up in the conversation and just pitched it to Luke, I said Luke listen I kind of know my way around the site, uh, if you ever need some help 
let me know. I've got some muscle. I'm willing to get dirty a little bit. I can help you out with any projects you need done. And in that moment, I was really just trying to talk myself up. I've never been on site before. I'm not an apprentice. I'm not a tradesman. I've got no idea like how to do anything on site. But I kind of talked myself up to Luke. And Luke actually jumped on the opportunity and he said, righto, hey, catch me out at Sanford next week. We are going to build a deck uh, in this person's yard. And um, a big part of this project and building this deck was, was actually to help Luke and one of his other workers uh, to pick up big pieces of timber and get them in as the, the foundation structure of this deck. So we had one pillar here, one pillar here, one pillar here, one pillar here, all in a square. And once we got that done, we had to start doing the scaffolding. If you don't know what scaffolding is, it's like those metal beams things that cross over each other. It's like adult, like proper Lego, except way more difficult because if it falls apart, there's like dire consequences. You don't want to muck around with scaffolding, I found out. Uh, and it takes a while to put up. We got the scaffolding done, I was part of that. I was feeling pretty good about myself. I was completely bluffing it. I had no idea what I was doing. But once we got the scaffolding up, which was like four meters off the ground, we started having to get these big pieces of timber that was going to act as the foundations of the deck. And we're lifting it up, and it took all three of us, two grown men and me. Um, and I was carrying it. I was carrying it at the front, and I'm like, <laughs> as I'm holding it, and these guys are just like, just toughing their chest out. So I'm like, I better try and push my chest out too. So I've got my timber. I'm walking at the front with the boys telling them it's all okay. I'm dying at the front, absolutely dying at the front. And we're taking this timber over to the scaffolding and I've climbed up it a little bit. And then my mate Luke's up it a little bit. The guy at the back's like tilted it. We've got this timber up and I've got no idea what's going on next. I'm just like panting and the boys are just like full muscle, full strength. Lukey hands me a pair of clamps. What are clamps and why are we using them to black? I don't even know what they're for. Luke's like, do you know how to use these? And I said to Luke, because I've told him back at this like football breakup party, I'm like, I know what I'm doing. And I said to Luke, yeah, no, no, no worries. Got the clamps, got the clamps. This is like rocket science. I've got no idea how to use these clamps. So I'm trying to figure out these clamps while the boys are taking on now the weight of the whole piece of timber. This thing is literally a tree. And um, I'm trying to get the clamps done. And, and I'm looking back at Luke, making sure he can't really see what I don't know, that I, like, that I don't know what I'm not, like I don't know that I don't know what I'm doing. And um, Luke's kind of looking at me like, you need help? No, no, all good, all good. This is like three minutes back and forth before Luke actually ended up resting this giant piece of timber on his shoulder and doing the clamp by himself while I came down from the scaffolding and put sunscreen on myself because I was getting burned. And um, it was just a shocking day. And I realized pretty quickly, when you lie about uh, what you were doing, with clamps whilst two grown men are holding a giant piece of timber two metres off the ground on scaffolding, uh, you know you're making a mistake. That is no longer costing you. It's costing the guys holding a giant piece of tree waiting on a guy who doesn't know how to work a clamp. Uh, one of my other jobs for the day was actually uh, bricklaying a three-by-three three pathway. I think that's called bricklaying. I was just trying to get bricks even uh, in this three-by-three three, like square um, because I told the boys I knew how to bricklay a three-by-three three pathway. It literally took me three hours and then it took one of the other fellas three minutes to actually fix the job with one of those balancing measuring sticks. It like measures the equal, you guys know what I'm talking about, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I literally stepped into this day and um, it's not even like I had all the gear and no idea. I was on site with a pair of ASICs, my Brisbane Raw kit shirt, a pair of rugger shorts from Lowe's that I bought just for this day and my peanut butter sandwich that I made the night before in my plastic sealed up bag. That was my smoko. Um, and I was excited for the day, but I really had no idea what I was doing. And, and the thing that made up for all of it was when the boys told me, Riley, we need you, we need your help. And I was like, this is my time to prove myself. I can show them that I know a little bit about what it means to be a tradesman. And puffed out my chest, came running down the hill. And um, the boys were like, Riley, we need you to go rescue that butterfly out of the spider's web near the shed. And I did. And all the boys filmed it and put it on their Snapchat. But that was the most productive thing I did that whole day. Uh, and ultimately, it's not that I just wanted to prove to myself that I could, that I could do everything by myself. I wanted to prove to other people uh, that I knew what I was doing, that I had it all together, that I kind of had an idea of, of what was happening. Um, 
that I was reasonably accomplished. I wanted to try and prove it to people that I could actually work out things by myself, but it ended up just taking more time than it needed to. Uh, it ended up costing other people time, and it made me look pretty foolish in the midst of all of it. But I tried to work everything out by myself across this whole day. Um, and I don't know how many times you've told yourself that, that I, that I can work this out by myself. I don't know how many times you've you played yourself off before as, uh, you know, trying to, to fix your own problems when it comes to things like your finances. When you're trying to fix your own uh, issues when it comes to things uh, like what's going on at work for you. When you try and uh, fix your own relational problems, you try and do this DIY job on yourself and tell yourself, I've got this. You become this lone ranger in your own hero's journey uh, where you tell yourself, I'm the protagonist. I can do this all by myself. It's all on me. I'm going to whack on my cowboy hat jump on my horse, I'm going to ride off into the distance listening to my Keith Urban, and I don't need anybody else's help. I've got this. I can work it out. It's all on me. And at the end of the day, we all want people to suspect the best of us. We all want to be known for certain things. We all have adjectives that we'd love for people to think when they hear our name. But how do we live the life best designed or best intended for us? When we're talking about this idea of a hero's journey, I want to bring you into a bit of a hero's journey tonight. It's about a guy who, um, who at one stage in his life actually appeared to have it all together. Uh, and this guy, he is a Christian fella. In fact, he's, he's a person that we can find in the timeline of history. He pops up in the Bible and the Old Testament side of things. And, and if you're someone who pushes back against Christians in the first place, like, hang on, because I think you're going to find it interesting where this story goes. Because if you're someone who said that, that Christians are hypocrites, wait till you hear this hero journey of a guy named David. In fact, King David was his real title. And David, whether you... Um, well, David, you've probably actually heard of him, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, because uh, David was that shepherd boy, that shepherd boy who walked out in front of that really, really, really tall guy named Goliath, who was like four times the size of Dwayne the Rock Johnson, and took him out in front of a massive army. David has this classic underdog story. Uh, more fun facts about David. David was actually a bit of a musician, definitely some recorder in grade four, most likely, but David was also a prodigy harpist. He dabbled in the field of harpery, so much so that he was actually known not just as a king, but when he was king, he was referred to as the sweet psalmist or the praiser of Israel. That was his title. How good is that for a touring headline across all the North Leagues Club on this side of the peninsula? The sweet psalmist or praiser of Israel. Ooh. But back to his hero's journey. That's a side note. We've all heard of David. David's rise to his throne. David's rise, rise to kingship. It, it was no direct route. In fact, the king of Israel at the time, even after, uh, after David actually killed Goliath, King Saul, uh, he actually threatened to have David killed because of how popular he was. But after a massive seasons-length episode of just drama after drama, King Saul recognized that David was, this going, uh, was the right successor to his throne. And David went on to, to unify nations. He defeated many armies and ruled well for some time. And there we have this hero's journey from shepherd boy to king, King David. And everyone loved David. And if we were to end that snippet of David's life, his little biography there, we've got ourselves a pretty peachy, pretty good underdog story that Disney could take and turn into a movie. But not everything about David's life is as peachy as it sounds. See, King David was a fella of contrasts. King David, at the kind of back end of his life, one minute he's living a life devoted to God as the king of, of, of God's chosen people of Israel and a life that is pretty fruitful in terms of its rewards. Then next minute, next minute, he makes some and decides to make some pretty serious mistakes. He, he really messes up. In fact, he makes some hypocritical mistakes and choices. And as I tell you this next part of David's story, uh, prepare yourself because there's kind of a gasp moment. 
You see, David, uh, David one day in his palace, when he had absolute power, absolute authority over God's chosen people over Israel, he looked out the window and he saw a woman bathing. And this is just one moment of his life where he, he's made a, a pretty bad mistake. He's looked out the window of his palace and he's seen a woman bathing on a rooftop, which was fairly normal back then. Don't recommend it now. And he's seen it, and her name was Bathsheba. And, and David's kind of looked once and then he's like looked away and then he's looked again and David's just gone, listen, I can take control of this situation. I've got some power. I like what I see. I'm going to ask Bathsheba to come into my palace. And then from there, because she is beautiful, I'm going to, you know, it's one of those, I'm going to stop using my hands. But I think you get where it kind of goes. Um, and he could, because he could, because he was king. That's how he used his power. And Bathsheba comes into the palace, and then it happens, and Bathsheba leaves and goes home, except Bathsheba um, falls pregnant. And I guess that's what happens when you procreate. Anyway, we don't need to go on the biology of it, but it happened, and, and Bathsheba falls pregnant. Um, but Bathsheba actually had a husband, and her husband, Uriah, was actually away in, at war serving David's army. He was fighting for Israel. Uh, and David freaks out when he finds out Bathsheba's fallen pregnant because all of a sudden he's like, how do I cover this up? How do I cover up uh, this choice that I've made, this choice that I know is wrong and clearly wrong was at the time and clearly wrong now, what do I do? Uh, so David decides to tell his servants, listen, we're going to call back Uriah. We're going to call back Uriah from the war and we're going to tell him to go home, to rest and chill out with Bathsheba. And then maybe, you know, if they, and then, well, maybe Uriah will think that that's his child and then it can work out that way. David had this plot of just deception and, and uh, really this way of, of trying to make up for his mistake. But see, Uriah comes back and, and when he's pulled into the palace, he, he says to King David, listen, I can't go home to my wife. My brothers are still fighting in the war. I'm going to sleep at the doors of the palace because my mind is still fixed on the warfare that's happening. I simply can't go home and, and be with my wife right now. And David's just like, oh my goodness, this isn't going to plan. This isn't looking good like Uriah. Go home and make it a baby with your wife. And, and Uriah's just like, I don't want to make it a baby with my wife. I want to sleep at the king's palace. And David's just like, well, what do we do? What do we do here? And he turns to his servants. He's like, listen, send Uriah to the front line. He's bound to get killed. Uriah does get killed. And then Bathsheba ends up becoming uh, David's wife. That's how he wins it out. But here's the gas moment because Bathsheba becomes David's wife of seven. Uh, David had seven wives, uh, and David was also all about a life of polygamy. In fact, scholars believe there were most likely more wives of the king, which though wasn't too uncommon in the culture of that time in history, it led him to become a father of plus 20 kids. Imagine parenting plus 20 kids with your seven wives, um, wives as, as a king of God's chosen people. You see, David made some pretty interesting life decisions for someone who was devoted to God. It was a bit of a mess. His life was flawed. It was broken. But that's just the plot. And the characters uh, actually enter into the story of David through his lens. And we find a shepherd turned king who had everything, was favored by everyone, who was known as a man after God's own heart, but lived a life full of self-deception. Like we said, like we said, David loved his music. And he actually has writings in the Old Testament part of the Bible um, known as Psalms. And, and Psalms in, in Hebrew as Bible was originally translated, actually means praises. And he writes a praise um, down in Psalms. It's in Psalms 119, chapter 10, uh, 29, if you, verse 29, sorry, if you want to follow along. Um, but he writes uh, this praise, and it's a funny one because you might not see it as one. But I want to read to you what it says. Because there's a time in David's life where things are confusing. He doesn't even know who, himself, uh, who he, he himself is anymore. He says, keep me from lying to myself. And give me the privilege of knowing your instructions. David calls out to God uh, in praise, keep me from lying to myself. Give me the privilege of knowing your instructions. 
And you see, David's writing gives us an internal view of the world and the reality that he was experiencing. This is a life of, of hiding mistakes, of trying to cover them up, a life of putting himself in this cycle of, of shame and guilt and then shame and guilt again, a life of lying to others, of self-deception, a life of lying to himself. And though we can't really determine what part of his reign he actually wrote this specific psalm, it's clear to see that David is crying out here, God, help me from deceiving myself and lying to myself. Also, David is crying out, how do I stop myself? And we can say, well, well, that's David's story, but we've all lived a different life of, of trying to cover up our own imperfections to look like the best version of ourselves. It's different for everyone, and it is. It's unique to the person in terms of your own story too. But at the end of the day, everyone has an idea of who they're supposed to be. And for some people, that, that person is successful. For some people, are the person they want to be it is beautiful. For some, it's rich. For others, it's perfection. For others, it's just this idea of looking like you have it all together. Sure, these are all sources, but rely on these things wholeheartedly. And you've got to ask yourself the question, will they sustain you? Will they satisfy you in the long term? All these things are pretty addictive because they all leave us feeling short-changed, asking for better improvement of ourselves or for more. They will lead us down a path of self-destruction and self-sabotage. And David is an example of this. So how do we stop ourselves from lying to ourselves? Or more so, how do we get real with ourselves? And to help us tonight to answer this question, I want to introduce you to a guy called John. And John was actually one of the 12 disciples that were around the time of Jesus that followed him around and got to know Jesus pretty personally. And John, through his own writings, reiterates what David says around living a life of self-deception. But he actually points us to a way to actually stop ourselves and gives us a solution to how we can get real with ourselves. This is what John uh, writes. He says, If we claim to be without sin, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And I just want to put a pause on it there because for some of you, you see the word sin and you're like, oh, there's that word again I, I hear from Christians and they tell me I'm sinful and I've lived a life of sin and that I'm broken. But at the same time, it sounds like such a cover blanket word for making mistakes or a couple of mistakes or a series of mistakes. But the thing is, is that sin is what ruptures our relationships with others. Sin is what ruptures our relationships with the people that we love. Sin is not a mistake. It's not even a repeated mistake. Sin is choosing to make a repeated mistake, intentionally knowing it would benefit yourself in the short term at the cost of someone else. Sin is choosing to not ask the question, what does love require of me? Because we are making the decision to say, I'm focusing on me first and others second. That's why pride is a clear root of all sin. We demand control as humans and have always been broken in nature. Sin is so prevalent in the evil of this world. Sin is what ruptures our relationships, not just with others. But this is the big thing. Sin ruptures our relationships with our relationship with God. And that's why John is saying, if we claim to not see our own brokenness, our own dishonesty to ourselves, and knowing that we should have known better, then we run the cost of not living a life of truth and not living a life where we are actually able to step into the person that we were intended to be. And when it comes to deceiving ourselves, why do we deceive ourselves? Why do we lie to ourselves? Why can't we be honest? It's because we're afraid of admitting that we don't have it all together. For some of you, for some of you, if you're anything like me, your default in primary school was not to put up your hand in class to ask questions. Not because you told yourself that you could work it out by yourself, but because you didn't want your friends or your teachers to think that you didn't know what you were doing. For some of you, you still don't ask questions at work. You still don't send the emails you know you should send to find out more out of the fear that others will think that you aren't competent enough in your job. Or you're not honest about what you need help with at work out of the fear of looking like you aren't resilient enough to be working where you work. For some of us, for some of us, being honest with mates 
could make it out that we aren't living this all-together life in our other relationships or even with our family at home that, they, uh, that you suspect that they think that you're living. For some of us, for some of us, we push back to reaching out, sharing or being honest in our relationships with your spouse or our families because the thought of you being honest about how you feel could lead to confrontation or could hurt someone that you love. So we tell ourselves, we tell ourselves, I need to maintain putting my highlight reels on my, my social media. I need to keep wearing a mask here. I'll find a way to suppress my feelings somehow from externalizing because if not, if not, people will think less of me. People will love me less. And if that happens, I won't just be less than others or just feel unlovable. I will be unlovable. There's a psychologist by the name of Paul Ekman uh, who's actually one of the consultants of the Disney Pixar movie Inside Out. And the Pixar movies are the one where the light does that thing where it's like, and then jumps on the eye. Uh, but Inside Out was like a five out of five movie and it got so many awards uh, purely because of, of how it actually looked at psychology through this angle of, of how our mind actually processes things like our thoughts and our feelings. But Ekman in the lead up to this film uh, did a study and his study became pretty well renowned pretty quickly because he looked at this idea of how we actually go about managing our emotions and, as humans. And Ekman was known for his study leading up to the field, particularly around this idea of display rules. And display rules, as Ekman describes them, are these often unspoken social guidelines that determine how much emotion we allow ourselves to display to others. Display rules are these often unspoken social guidelines that determine how much emotion we allow ourselves to display to others. And Ekman mentions two that are most prevalent in humans in our culture today. The first is this one known as minimizing. And minimizing is keeping our poker face on the whole time in our life because we're afraid that our real emotions will actually get us in trouble somehow, some way. Minimizing is putting our poker face on so other people can't read what's happening on the internal and it's giving a facade on the external. That's what minimizing looks like. And then he talks about a second display rule known as substituting. And this is when you exchange in conversation uh, when someone asks you a question, that classic question when you come home from school or, or come from, from work of how is your day, how are you going, and you just hit people back with I'm fine, I'm good, I'm travelling okay. But the real emotion on the inside is I'm in a little bit of trouble, I'm a little bit stressed, I'm very well behind, but I'm actually feeling really anxious. We substitute what we mean for something else to let people think that we're actually doing better than what we are. And both of these emotions can set you up, for, uh, set you up to withdraw and, and try to escape being honest with yourself. And this is when we lie to ourselves best, this, this process of numbing, where we actually turn to things like Netflix, turn to things like shopping and spending more. We start to bring more work home so we feel more busy, so we don't have to deal with what's happening on the inside. We start to turn to things that can become addictive for us or can put us in a different habit. We put ourselves in short-term relationships that become addictive. It's this active level of anxiety that can push us towards depression too. Numbing is this process of turning to an activity to numb our feelings so we don't have to deal with vulnerability. We don't have to deal with being honest with ourselves. It's avoidance, it's avoidance, so you don't have to experience the state of being vulnerable. And ultimately, it's an escape. That's what Ekman's saying through these two display rules. It's an escape that numbs ourselves to love, to belonging, and to empathy. It's running away from vulnerability in the most dangerous way. And not dealing with our display rules or how we avoid experiencing vulnerability appropriately can put us in a cycle of making ourselves feel isolated feeling emotionally neglected, feeling rejected, feeling not good enough, feeling fake, feeling like we don't have the right people skills, we can feel like an outsider, and we set ourselves up to uh, feel the very cost of not being vulnerable in the first place, this fear of rejection. And we slip into self-deception so quickly and dishonesty to ourselves. And if we can't be honest with ourselves, 
And there is a great chance that we can't be honest with others. And two things, two things that will eat away at our ability to be honest with ourselves and in our relationships, all our relationships, and two things that point us away from the truth that John is talking about are these. One, and the first one, is guilt. And guilt causes us to feel bad about what we've done. Guilt stops us from addressing a problem or something of our past. Guilt can temporarily or permanently stop our ability to reconnect with someone. But the second is this. The second is shame. And whilst guilt causes us to feel bad about what we've done, shame causes us to feel bad about who we are. Shame can make us feel small, but in our shame, and when shame enters as a voice and negative self-talk into our own head, it can come across so big, so bold, so heavy. Shame is a heavy feeling. It's a toxic kind that can cause us to feel like we can never be accepted. And the thing about shame is, is that we don't just feel it, we wear it. It stops us from standing up for ourselves. We accept being mistreated or undermined. We blame ourselves rather than going to people for help. Our failures become who we are rather than just an event. When shame takes over, we believe we can't learn anything. We start living in our past mistakes. We, we fill our life with problems after problems, and we find ourselves wrestling with this core belief that we are still somehow the ones that are destined to make things work again. Shame is so quick to tell us that the only option is a DIY job on ourselves. Shame gives us no way of putting up our hand to ask for help. Shame is the most powerful master emotion. It's the fear that we're not good enough. And when we let shame cover us, we reject anyone who does good, who we think is good, out of spite and out of envy of what we know that they have and we don't. And shame thieves us of joy. It's eats away at meaningful relationships. Shame can tell us that we'll never be accepted, we'll never be loved. Shame stops us from being known to and by others. When shame and guilt takes over, our negative thoughts become our default. The negative self-talk becomes an easy thing to put into our heads and the input is repeated and repeated in this cycle. And when we choose these two things to control our ability to not choose to be honest with ourselves, self-deception wins out every time, every day. You will always feel short-changed. If you're not around people you can be honest with, having only people in your circle that are numb themselves to honesty will only numb you more. We deceive ourselves when we choose not to be vulnerable with ourselves. And ultimately, we all need a reality check. Because David's example teaches us that honest self-examination is necessary to recognize our own sin, our own brokenness. And, and if we aren't honest with ourselves, then we can't possibly be honest or vulnerable with others, and we can't be vulnerable with God. That's why our big bottom line tonight is this. To be vulnerable, you need to start by being vulnerable with yourself. Why? Because choosing not to won't just affect your internal reality, but it will affect how you operate in your external reality too, your public world, your relationships. But the good thing is, is that John actually writes on. He writes on, and in his next verse, in verse 9, he tells us how we can stop ourselves from lying to ourselves and actually step into the life that was actually intended for us. This is what he writes. He says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive. He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. And when he's talking about he, he's talking about God. When you put you in charge of your life, you put your trust and strength to mend yourself in yourself. And the thing is, if you know that you're broken, brokenness can't fix brokenness. And for that reason, vulnerability isn't weakness. It's actually some irony in what John talks about because when we confess our brokenness, when we're actually honest with ourselves and with others, it actually takes more strength and more courage to be vulnerable. 
And this is the creator of the universe who actually cares about every one of your problems. See, God only has one display rule. Bring your whole self to me. Your sadness, your disappointments, your anger, your past, your fears of the future, your present thinking and feelings. Bring your real self to me. Why? Who is this God? He's a God who is faithful. He doesn't run. He doesn't hide. When you don't have the courage, he's there to give it. He doesn't leave you lonely. He wrote himself into your story in the first place, and he didn't do it to prove himself to you, but because he desired a connection, he desired a relationship. He experienced the human feelings and thoughts that you experienced. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. This is a God who is just. He isn't quit to blame, to hold on to past mistakes. He judges by love. He cares more about your future than you do. That's why he wrote himself in in the first place. And this is God who will forgive. He's a heavenly father who pinned himself on a cross so you can know that your love does not have to be earned. So you don't have to fear living from this core belief that you're weak or hopeless or unlovable. He forgives for the sake of wanting to be known to you and by you. So there's no need to be afraid when you know you are loved. And being fully known, being accepted and loved is one of the greatest feelings in the world. But to be vulnerable with others, to be vulnerable with God, you need to start by being vulnerable with yourself. And that involves a reality check. Because being honest with yourself is the first step of a reality check. That's why this week we want to give you an application point. And we package it in this thing called a four Monday because we believe what's the point in coming to church on Sunday if it's not going to change you, if it's not going to impact you for Monday. And this week's four Monday is this. It's to practice being real with yourself. To practice being real with yourself, to practice being honest with yourself just this week. Why? Because often our lives are so busy that we don't have time to reflect on where we're at in life. This can so quickly lead us to have a distorted view of ourselves and, and sometimes of others. And I could only imagine how an absence of vulnerability in the long term in terms of close relationships, dating relationships, uh, marriage, family life, because of busyness could lead you to lose out in the time and the connection that you have with the people that you love most. Reflecting on where we are enables us the ability to be vulnerable with ourselves in our current reality. To practice being real and honest with yourself just this week. And you might be asking, how do I do that? What does that even look like? 